Now, chapter 22, verse 1. The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. Balak, son of Zippor, saw all the Israelites had gone to the Amorites, and the Moabites were greatly afraid of the people because they were so numerous. The Moabites were sick with fear because of the Israelites. So Moab becomes very afraid. And Moab is afraid that they're going to be attacked. Now, Moab doesn't know that God has said that Israel is not allowed to attack the Moabites because they're on the no-attack list. But all Moab knows is the two people north of him just got completely defeated. And even though the armies have moved up the eastern side between Jericho and the Ammonites and conquered the Amorites, most of the people are still down here close to Moab in the plains of Moab. The people are encamped between Moab and the Ammonites, and they know that they're literally right over there. And after they just saw them get defeated, they, the Edomites, just rejected them going through their land, and Moab just rejected Israel going through their land. And so now they're afraid that it might come back on them and retaliate because they don't know what land has been given to them. And even if they knew what land has been given to the Israelites, that doesn't mean that the Israelites are going to be content with that land and not just... Because most people in the ancient world just land and power grab. And why would they ever think that the Israelites are different? And so they're afraid. But the Moabites know something. They cannot defeat Israel militarily. Okay, this is like you walk into the playground, you're new into school, and you just beat the crap out of the biggest and most powerful bully on the playground. Everybody else is going to be scared to death from you from that point on. And that's what God just did. So they're scared to death. And they know enough that Israel has a no treaty policy, according to the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Numbers and that kind of stuff. But it'll be more detailed in Deuteronomy. So they got to try to find a different way to stop Israel. So verse 4, So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, Now this mass of people will lick everything around us like a bull devours the grass of the field. That's very visual. Now Balak, son of Zippor, was the king of the Moabites at this time, and he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor of Pathor, which is by the Euphrates River in the land of Anah, to summon him, saying, Look, a nation has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. They are settling next to me. So now please come and curse this, this nation for me, for they are too powerful for me. Perhaps I will prevail so that we may conquer them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whoever bless you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. So Balak says, I'm going to hire Balaam, who lives in Mesopotamia along the Euphrates River, to come down and put a curse on this nation. Now, to us, that seems very childish, dumb. But you have to understand, they believe very much in the spiritual realm, and they believe in the power of the spiritual realm over the physical realm. And I would say, and the Bible would say, they are 100% correct. Just because we don't believe that anymore doesn't mean it's not true. The spiritual realm does have huge power and influence on the material realm. And we know we really believe that deep down inside because we've seen Jesus with demon-possessed people. And there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible about that and spiritual warfare. And so what they believed is that they believed that the enemy can be defeated in two different ways, through military defeat or incantations. And what they believed is they could go... And if you've got a powerful magician 
who really understood the spiritual realm was powerful, they believed that you could do incantations or rituals and you could weave enough power and magic, and specifically if you learn the names of the gods, that you can control them and hinder them. So what he's going to do is hire Balaam to come down and do magical incantations with sacrifices and blood and incantations with words, and he's going to bind Yahweh so that Yahweh can no longer side with his people and defeat the enemies. Now, this is a very common thing. Um, over and over, there's stories of people who want to have power. Like somebody, I forget what her name is. I think it's, um, I forget who it is. But one of the goddesses in the Egyptian mythology wants to have the power of Ra, the sun god. So she goes to Ra and says, tell me your name. Of course, Ra's never going to give it her name because if you know somebody's name, that gives you power over them. Or you can at least do the same thing that they can. So she ends up tricking him and gets a serpent to bite him, and he begins to die. So in his throes of death, he says, cure me, cure me. And she says, I'll only cure you if you tell me your name. And it takes him three years to say his name because it's so long. And when she finally gets it, she gives him the cure, and now she has a name, and she actually becomes equal and rises in power over Ra. And she begins able to manipulate the material realm because she now has the power of Ra to manipulate him into doing what she wants because she knows her name. You've seen this with Rumpelstiltskin, um, our modern-day fairy tale. Well, kind of modern-day, but still around. So he curses them, and when they figure out his name, they're able to control him, and they're able to drive him away, drive the curse away, because now they know his real name. This is a very common theme in folklore, uh, wise tales, Eastern mythologies. They're hiring Balaam to bind Yahweh. Now you need to understand something. Balaam shows up, Balaam shows up outside the Bible. In Egyptian and Mesopotamian writings, he shows up outside the Bible as an incredibly famous, well-respected, one of the most powerful magicians in the world that everybody wants to hire. And every king is wanting to hire Balaam because there's nothing that he cannot do. And his reputation is, this is not a biblical character. This is a well-documented, attested historical figure who everyone in the ancient world from Egypt to Mesopotamia sees as an unstoppable magician and that whatever he says happens because he's that powerful and that good at manipulating the pagan gods. Now, once you understand that, that makes the story even more powerful. That makes the story even more powerful. So Balak says, I'm going to pay you. And remember, this guy is top dollar, too. And Balak is either incredibly wealthy or incredibly desperate. So he sends messages up to Balaam and says, come down and curse these people that surround me. And Balaam says, okay. But that night, Yahweh comes to him and says, you're not going. And Balaam wakes up the next morning and tells the messenger, says, I can't go. Yahweh won't let me. That's huge. This is the most respected and known guy in the ancient world who can manipulate and bind and control whatever God he wants. And in one statement, Yahweh says no. And he says, okay. That shows you that Yahweh is way more than any of these pagan gods out there. 
But Balak isn't having that. He's like, you want more money? I'll give you more money. He's desperate. So he sends him up again. This time, God says, okay, go. But you're only allowed to say what I want you to say. Meaning, you're not going to manipulate and control me. And by me, I'm going to manipulate and control you. Now, I know that seems really harsh for a loving God to do that. But remember, this is Balaam. Okay, this, this guy needs to be humbled <laughs> and brought down a few notches. And oh, he will be brought down. So they go back to him. And then he says, okay, I'll do it. Balak doesn't care. Balak's thinking, okay, but once you're here and we're going through the rituals and you see the bling bling and the money and all that kind of stuff, you won't say that anymore. Because Balak has never heard this anymore, ever before. Nobody says this like... <laughs> So verse 21, so Balaam got up in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the prince of Moab. Then God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of Yahweh stood in the road to oppose him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. So the donkey turned aside from the road and went into the field. But Balaam defeated the donkey, or sorry, beat the donkey to make her turn back to the road. Now, this is really confusing. So God says, okay, you can go down, but you can only say what I want you to say. So Balaam, Balaam gets up the next morning, gets on his donkey, starts writing out like God says he can, and God gets really angry at him and stops him. We're like, like, what's going on? We're not told specifically why God got mad at him, but we can take a guess based on what the book of um, Jude and Revelation say about him. Balaam is an incredibly greedy, evil man. And he's condemned in the book of Revelation for his greed. And so, and he will eventually be killed by Joshua in one of the next upcoming battles because he's so ungodly. The reality is maybe what's going on here is because God knows the heart is he's probably thinking he can play both sides. Remember, this guy has spent his entire life manipulating the gods. So maybe he's probably thinking, hey, I'll go down and get ble- do blessings because Yahweh told me that, but I'll still get paid. So this is really about the money. I'll, get, I'll make both people happy. And maybe that's why God is judging him. The fact that so many passages keep bringing up his greed in other books of the Bible suggests that his heart isn't really with God and that this is probably why he's being condemned. Now this is really important for you to understand because over and over and over again, Balaam keeps saying Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. And we've learned that usually when people use the name Yahweh, that means that they know Yahweh and they have a relationship with him. But that's not a rule or a guarantee. In fact, God uses that in different ways too, especially when we get to judge us. And he's called um, a, 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 like an oracle. And people are used to people, if you're an oracle, you must belong to God. But that's not always true either. And he seems to be obeying God. So everything about him in this passage seems like, oh, he's a godly prophet. But that's not true. First, the prophets were never, ever, ever allowed to take money to do prophets, to speak the will of God, or that kind of stuff. Balaam is taking money. In fact, he's doing it for the money. In fact, he's going to be condemned throughout the entire Bible for being greedy and all about the money. So then immediately sets him in a completely different category from the prophets, because the prophets are never allowed to talk. In fact, Elijah, when he's offered money by Naaman, the guy with the skin disease, Elijah says, no, I don't want your money. And then Gehazi, his servant, follows him down and says, oh, no, no, we changed our mind. We want your money. 
And Elijah finds out and says, you now have the skin disease that Naaman said because you tried to sell the things of God. So that's how seriously God takes not taking money. And the fact that Balaam is doing that and does it for the money and gets paid by Balak, and he's called greedy all through the Bible, says that he's not a godly man. He's not a prophet. Um, and so that's important to understand. Nor are the prophets ever called oracles. The prophets throughout the Bible are never called oracles. Two, the second reason that you know he's not godly is he's dumber than his donkey. <laughs> that's the big theme that's going to be played out here is that God is going to control Balaam. So he's controlled in the sense that he's not allowed to go, but then God says, okay, you can go. And then God controls the donkey and even forces Balaam up against the wall and Balaam can't do it. The donkey is able to see this angel and yet he can't see it. And that's huge. The most spiritually wise and powerful man in all the ancient world can't see an angel, but his donkey can Hey, you're not that awesome. And so the reality that all this is satire. The Bible's using satire to bring Balaam down several notches. And so the reality is that he's being driven the entire time. That's not how the prophets work. Usually when God comes to a prophet, they work together. And God even sometimes with the prophet says, hey, what do you want to do? And the prophet says, I think we should do that. And God says, that's a great idea. Not that God needs their advice. Not that God stumped and says, I don't know what to do. But because God wants to join us. And he, it's, not, it's just like my kids join me in building things. I don't need them. In fact, sometimes I don't want them to help me. But I let them join me because that's what it means to be a family. And I enjoy them being there. And so that's what God does. He doesn't need you to convert people, but yet he tells you to go and witness, not because he needs you, but because he wants you to join him. And that's what we see with the prophets. Balaam is not being joined by God, and God is not joining him. He's being driven by God. So just because he's using the name Yahweh doesn't mean anything here. There is no sign of holiness. Just because you're called a prophet, too, doesn't mean that you have a godly character. Saul is going to prophesy and yet he clearly does not have a godly character. In fact, God is going to allow Saul to prophesy to distract him from trying to kill David. So prophecy and prophet are not always a sign of godliness. Using the name Yahweh is not a sign of godliness. Jephthah is going to use the name Yahweh as he's sacrificing his daughter to Yahweh. Just because he's using the name Yahweh and he's called a prophet doesn't mean he's godly. If you look at his character, he's doing this for the money, He's cursed by God throughout the rest of the Bible. And eventually, when we get to the end of the story, we're going to find out that he's going to give Moab some really evil, jacked-up advice to bring down Israel. And so this guy is not godly. Even though he uses the name Yahweh, he's called a oracle. Don't let that confuse you. It's also to remember that most of the time, the biblical narrators do not comment on the godliness or the ungodliness of their characters in the story. Most of the time by now, they expect you to have a good understanding of who God is, and they want you to evaluate their godly or character. Very rarely, even with David. I mean, when David, like, cuts the head off of Goliath and carries it around as a trophy for 25 years, the Bible doesn't say, that's wrong, he was bad. Because it assumes by now you should figure out that's not good. So very rarely, unlike today, where narrators tell you everything in books and stories the bible is not interested in evaluating every character for you because that's the whole point of the bible the bible wants you to do that you're supposed to go to the bible 
and really work hard to look at this person's life because the more that you investigate and study and the more that you kind of, what is David doing here? Is it good or is it bad or is it a little bit of both? The more that you do that, then that causes you to reflect on your own life. The Bible is not telling you a story. The Bible is getting you to learn something about your life and your culture. And the narrator tells you all the time, good, good, bad, bad, good, good, bad, that was bad. Then you just, you're entertained. But if you actually have to be like, oh my gosh, what this is so gray. Then when you begin to study and evaluate and you pay attention to all the, narr- the literary devices and all that kind of stuff, that forces you to look at your own life more. And that's the primary, one of the primary purposes of the Bible is to get you to introspect on your own life. And a narrator evaluating everything for you does not do that. And so don't read these stories and think, if the narrator doesn't tell me they're bad, then they're not, because then you've missed the whole agenda of a narrator in the Eastern world. It's all about reflection. It's all about investigation. He's not a godly man. 